Hello, welcome to Candy Jail. On today's show, we'll begin to synthesize what we've gone over these last six episodes and begin to contextualize the commercialized food system within our personal lives. That is, we'll begin to examine how market-driven changes shape the way that we eat, who we eat with, and how we prepare to eat. In order to do so, we'll begin by looking at how the commercialized food system has spread around the world. Because as the American model continues to spread, it leaves not just economic, health, and environmental impacts, but cultural ones too. And by looking at how it's spread across the world, we can hold a mirror up to ourselves. The market asks people to change the way they eat, often breaking ancient norms in order to do so. Our eating norms here in the States are now largely determined by the companies that give us directives on how to eat. They lay out all the instructions on their labels and in their advertising. As I mentioned in the first episode on the origins of the supermarket, something began to really change when we first took cues from the market on how to eat. Recall that when shelves and packaging were introduced to present our food to us, we began to take cues on how to think about food from the market. The knowledgeable grocer was replaced by packaging, which cost supermarkets far less. Customers simply had to trust the packaging that was begging them to buy it. They had to take companies at face value and believe the social messaging that accompanied the substance of the food. This allowed food to become a tool for convenience or a status symbol. We once learned about food from our family and community, but packaging and marketing slowly began to triumph over those traditional ways of receiving a food education. To illustrate how this would have manifested, consider the rapid replacement of family traditions with time-saving techniques. To help illuminate how commercialized food is spreading, we'll be hearing from Marin Toscano. Marin spent two years studying food culture in China as a Fulbright scholar. She now connects people to global foods with her organization, The Food Bridge. We're not connected anymore to what food really is, which is just nourishment, which is just direct nourishment. When I was in China, you know, that was a big part of the experience for me. Like, wow, these people, they were directly influenced too. That was a big part of what I was looking at was the effects of the American system being globally exported to China and India and a lot of these places and how food was becoming a status symbol so quickly. And that the capitalist surge in China led people within a matter of like two generations to go from eating a largely agrarian diet of rice and a lot of vegetables that were freshly grown and a little bit of meat for flavoring, 10%, 20% of a meal. And then suddenly capitalism made meat a status symbol. How much meat can you eat? <laughs> And they brought in more commercial practices to raise that meat and meet the rising demand. Where before, and, and there's, it's, you still have both in China side by side, which is what's so interesting. You know, like you can go to a village and, and some villages are still just raising all their own chickens and you show up as the honored guest and they're like, hey, which chicken do you want us to kill for you? <laughs> and you're like, really, this is my decision. The point is, you know, you have both, and, but it, what's tragic is to see that their diabetes rates, for example. You know, diabetes used to be like 1% of the population in China in 1991, I believe. And by 2015, which was the first year I went there for a, a first language study, they were at 
11%, which is either the same or a little bit higher than America. And that's just, you know, what, 25 years of a massive shift in eating. And what's different? Processed foods. They're eating Oreos, they're eating Doritos now, which these brands too, they are targeting markets in China and India because they understand that in the US, the, these foods, Doritos and whatever, are already seen as junk food, already seen as garbage, are already outpriced by the health trends that have come through of healthy snacks or whatever. But in China, and a lot of these cultures that are quickly becoming developed or Western or whatever you want to say, those foods are a status symbol. <laughs> and, and the companies are even, there's a Chinese term for it that's like Zhongguohua. They're Chineseifying their brands. So, you know, KFC comes in and, and they start selling chicken feet. That was smart. Like it does make it more, you know, culturally, whatever. The Oreos are doing some really weird things where they've got 15 different flavors. For some reason, Chinese people are obsessed with sweet things that are also spicy. So there's like spicy Oreos. There's tomato flavored Oreos. There's like hot pot Oreos. There's weird Dorito flavors that you're just like, what is this? And you start to see that these big companies are actually probably getting 80% of their revenue outside of the US at this point because their trajectory has already flatlined in the US. People still eat it sometimes, you know, when you go to a gas station, but you don't have a lot of people that are obsessed with Doritos still. Sometimes it takes seeing a process unfold elsewhere to show us how drastically our own culture has been impacted by corporate control. Marin's experience in China shows us the rapid unraveling of generations, hundreds upon hundreds of years of food culture in real time. Unfortunately for us, we're already so far gone that we can't easily perceive how mired in it we all are. The damage wrought by Clarence Saunders and his nascent food system has already decimated our social food infrastructure. Food that is packaged and competing for your purchasing power exists on an entirely different plane than food that comes from a place of tradition. Consider Marin's comments on taste getting manipulated in the form of hot pot Oreos and chicken feet at KFC. It's natural to laugh as if the Chinese are having the wool pulled over their eyes, but somehow we can't perceive this having happened to us ad infinitum. Our food system is so dominated by this specificity that we've lost our ability to see how entrenched it is. Hot pot flavored Oreos pale in comparison to an entire empire of consumption that is built to satisfy diet restriction, sugar content, paleo, keto, vegan, all meat diet, pre made dinners, pre made sandwiches, frozen pizzas, etc. We've built an empire around satisfying everyone's specific tastes and have lost deeper connections to food while supposedly catering to all. But it should be stressed that this is a weird system, it's highly unusual. It isn't a cuisine with a historical lineage that makes up commercialized food. In fact, considering something like hot pot flavoring would be necessary to make Oreos enticing to the Chinese reveals the fact that it's in service of a larger cultural tradition. When in contrast, the only thing we need in our food culture to draw us towards Oreos was pure sugar. There's not even a nod to legacy or tradition. We started to do some research and said, gee, you know, I'm not sure everybody really likes this, this American version, which is quite sweet. So we started testing alternatives, and it took us a long time and a lot of prototypes because we were trying to get exactly the right balance. And then Lorna Davis heads Kraft China. She says remaking the Oreo helped double sales in two years and made Oreo the number one selling biscuit in China. Our food exists outside of a cultural context. It has emerged out of a vacuum. 
But among all of those various commodified foods that exist to satisfy our every impulse, I'll emphasize two things, seemingly endless choice and total immediacy. So what made the U.S. the perfect petri dish for this strain of commercialized food to emerge in? If we can look at other so-called developed countries that have not embraced our obsession with convenience, how do we stand out as different? How did food become a device for simply getting through the day, being nothing more than a means to an end? Or as we discussed in episode 2, how did Walmart founder Sam Walton's endless pursuit of efficiency manifest so perfectly in the U.S.? To understand that, we have to examine the American obsession with the virtue of work, and therefore recontextualize food as fuel for work and little else more. We must convert food into something that is pure energy. According to one theory, the conditions for a world built around efficiency have its roots in the Protestant Reformation. The sociologist Max Weber understood the concept of thrift and efficiency to be the underpinning of an ideal, an entire way of being, that he captures in his essay, the Protestant work ethic, and the spirit of capitalism. In the essay, Weber questions how it came to be that a universally accepted sense of morality became conflated with a stringent work ethic. That is, attributes such as punctuality, industry, and frugality were not just useful tools circumstantially, but the makings of a highly moral person, somebody that you look up to. To work tirelessly and make money was good, and to accumulate and grow it even better. The very best types of people would not use their funds for any needless frivolities or personal indulgences. According to Weber, this was the origin of making money for the sake of making it. This new idea being introduced to a world that, for tens of thousands of years, had accumulated not much more than their basic needs. In this sense, the Protestant work ethic represents a radical change to human nature. How we worked and perceived excess would, therefore, naturally change the way we ate and how we perceived the role of food in our lives. Weber believed that something happened where accumulating wealth for the sake of accumulating it and doing everything in one's power to expand it went from being something that someone might do out of greed to something that became the makers of a highly moral and upstanding person. So according to him, our obsession with efficiency and thrift, the ideals that would create the conditions for prepared foods, begins during the Protestant Reformation, where, in an attempt to reclaim moral authority from the hierarchical Catholic Church, everyday laborers were told that their efforts were meaningful and righteous and that by working, they were fulfilling God's will, and that God approved of any and all work. To do their work as well as possible was a way in which God could be thanked. This was a very radical idea, and it took pursuing this new truth with an extremist zeal for it to topple the seemingly monolithic power of the Catholic Church. It was, oddly enough, also a pretty emancipatory idea. Catholic clerics were the only ones who claimed to have any meaning behind their work. So this new way of envisioning labor as righteous was a middle finger to that exclusionary power structure. So work, which is now good, allows people to feel closer to God because that is what God has willed for them. Anyways, so how does that fit in with our story? Well, that sort of idea took hold and then created the conditions for people to work to save money at every turn possible, to work as long as possible, and to do everything in their power to demonstrate their commitment to frugality, since that was a new way to demonstrate morality. So avoiding excesses like rich foods demonstrated virtue, and avoiding things that took you away from your work, like meals, showed your commitment to work ethic. Does this sound familiar yet? I think the earliest adopters of the Protestant work ethic would have been absolutely thrilled to have foods that allowed them to keep working as much as possible. Imagine a 17th century bricklayer having a power bar on the job. He would be overjoyed to know that he didn't have to leave his job site in order to eat lunch. Fast forward a couple hundred years, 
This ethic took hold in the predominantly Protestant United States, where it has obviously become the prevailing ideology. And what does that look like? Well, look around you. The ethos of the Protestant work ethic is now so entrenched around us that our entire food system coalesces around it. Efficiency as a concept has dominated our culture so much that our lives have an on-the-go feature to accommodate every part of it. Implicit in this is an obsession with the idea of work. In line with the Protestant work ethic, food should never get in the way of labor. If work is happening, allow the market to accommodate your needs by providing you with a slab of carbohydrates wrapped in plastic. The caloric input needed for work can happen that way. The thing is, people don't actually like working more than they have to. I know, crazy. I bear stressing that although this idea is taken for granted as the modus operandi of the entire Western world now, it was by no means a natural state of affairs. That it actually runs completely counter to human nature, to work for the sake of working and to accumulate resources for the sake of accumulating them. Baber expands on this further in a passage where he explains how this ideology had to, quote, fight its way to supremacy against a whole world of hostile forces, and that this new way of working for the sake of working, and to save and accumulate money for the sake of saving it, would, quote, in ancient times and in the Middle Ages, have been prescribed as the lowest sort of greed, and as an attitude entirely lacking in self-respect. It is, in fact, regularly thus looked upon by all those groups which are least involved or adapted to modern capitalistic conditions, end quote. A commercialized food system logically emerges out of a country that was built out of the Protestant work ethic. Conversely, a robust traditional food system, and all the time that requires, is antithetical to the food as pure energy model. This is all to say that our infrastructure for food reveals a system in which one of the most sacred things about being human has had all of its soul sucked out of it. We've vacuum sealed our sustenance in order to make sure that we're at our most productive. The clearest way that this manifests is within the phenomenon of single-serving food. It showed me so much about what's being lost and how quickly it's being lost as a result of this global industrial food system. We look at literally what's happened and then we look at the psychological and spiritual implications of that. And you mentioned plastics. I think that packaging and what that's done to our environment is one really huge way to just look at this connection. It's been referred to as a single serve culture or convenience culture. And I mean, this is really what corporatizing food has done. And let's just look at what this looks like in everyday people's lives, you know. Actually, I'll, I'll use a personal example first, you know, that my mom always used to talk about. When, you know, when she was a kid growing up in Pennsylvania in this small immigrant town, they went very quickly. She saw the process within over overnight, over a year, of all the little mom and pop shops that had little tiny grocery stores that, you know, specialized in bread or specialized in meat or produce or whatever. She saw those close down and get wiped out and be replaced by supermarkets <laughs> where you could get everything in one go. So she started coupon clipping and, you know, basically doing, she's a perfect example of a woman that did what the marketing told her to do. And in a time when there was like little choice really or consciousness or awareness that there should be any distrust in these products that were coming through and being like, we're making your life easier. Instant mashed potatoes. You'll make your husband happy with a hungry man TV dinner. And you know, 
we can't blame anyone from like not being aware of where this train was gonna lead. But now the oceans are literally filling up with this single serve packaging. Packaged instant potatoes give the housewife a new convenience. This shelf item will save her 23 minutes of cooking time. Research with consumers helped put the new product on the market. Perhaps more so than any other part of the food system, single-serving culture exemplifies the triumph of marketing. What is being marketed to us is much more than the product itself. It is a lifestyle and a dedication to the chief priority of the market, efficiency. We've been told to speed up our lives and not to slow down for sustenance. Far from being a means to connect with family and friends, a massive part of our caloric intake has become little more than a matter of shoving energy into our mouth to meet the day's challenges. Ironically, this has coincided with a time where our daily tasks have been reduced to extremely banal activities. Rather than eating 30 grams of protein to sustain hours of manual labor, most consumers of on-the-go bars are eating these to scroll through their phones at work, or to work on a spreadsheet, or to scroll on their phones while supposedly working on a spreadsheet. The promotion of efficiency as a way to live has so enveloped us that we steam through not only our work, but sustenance. Here we see exactly how the marketing of food removes us from the rich cultural heritage of food and its awesome power to foster human relationships. To illustrate the manner in which some of these firms have attempted to blur the line between culture and consumption, consider some of the efforts that companies have undertaken in order to make people feel a semblance of community, tradition, or family gathering when they think of their food. Think of Uncle Ben's Betty Crocker and Grandma's Cookies. The origins of packaged food marketing was for the brand to ooze with an urge to create a sense of the familiar, to evoke a nostalgia for what our collective unconscious perceives as the right way to eat food. Even though we might not be spending hours making it, we can retain a connection to what our modes of sharing meals once looked like. A particularly absurd manifestation of this is the lie of, quote, homemade, or the even more hilariously named home style that adorns so much packaging. I hardly have to explain that mass-produced foods are not made in homes. And yet these efforts seem to work. At least, the illusion of a connection to our psychic association with consuming homely food remains. Uncle Ben's, Betty Crocker, and Grandma's Cookies retain their tacky veneer because it clearly hasn't stopped working. The success of this gimmick, to trick us into thinking that packaging suggests homeliness, creates a cultural context for the factory-produced food we're eating. Despite the success of this model, it has given way to a form of marketing that is even further removed from what food actually was once like. Today, packaging materials are beginning to leave behind the illusion of home and embrace the prioritization of health and cleanliness, even sterility. Minimalism is taking over, suggesting to consumers that the product beneath the cellophane is clean and organic. Less ingredients, just as much superfluous packaging. This shift captures a dark turn in our concept of what it means to eat. Even the illusion of being connected to your tradition or a sense of home is disappearing. Food now becomes its most base, superfluously utilitarian form. It is nothing more than something to keep us alive. We become Cronenberg's fly, ravenously unwrapping packaged sugar to feed our reptilian urges to satisfy the impulse for energy. The things that have made us human, rather than insect, the things that have brought us all this progress, have slowly devolved into a return to the bottom of evolutionary impulses. This is what marketers signal to us. 
eat what is shiny, bright, and sugary. Survive, conquer the day. Don't let trivial matters such as community or sustenance get in the way of efficiency. Max Weber's ideas are able to inform us on how food came to be what it is today and show us how the food we eat is tied to our outlooks on work and how we spend our time. His ideas can illustrate how we've cellophane-wrapped our food at the cost of culture and tradition and the well-being that once accompanied food. Where we learned about what shaped us in the past with Faber, we can look to the present with the work of Mark Fisher to see how these changes impact us on an emotional and spiritual level today. In 2009, Mark Fisher wrote Capitalist Realism, in which he detailed, among other things, how the mental health crisis that has come to dominate the Western world is not some mysterious force, some black cloud that we can't find the source of. Rather, Fisher argues that this default space of doom and despair is a result of systematic atomization that has been generated by market forces. That is, the market benefits from isolating us. This is what Fisher refers to as, quote, capital's drive towards atomistic individualization. Within that isolation, we are urged to consume more in order to fill the voids that would have once been filled by community. Fisher paints a picture of a world where the idea of competition and an emphasis on the individual is a fundamental pillar of our collective outlook. He argues that the mental health crisis embodies this reality because the way that we are taught to think of mental health is as a pathological problem of the self. Mental health issues are not viewed as the result of a siloed, atomized life dominated by competition, but instead we are led to believe that these issues are the result of people's own faulty wiring. To believe that the problem isn't a society structured around keeping people separated, but a deficiency in their ability to produce serotonin. Of course, the market reinforces this by encouraging people to medicate themselves to overcome their inherent faults. Here's Fisher describing it, quote, By privatizing these problems, treating them as if they were caused only by chemical imbalances in the individual's neurology and or by their family background, any question of social systemic causation is ruled out. Here Fisher pleads us to ask what causes these deficiencies. How have they struck such massive populations all at once? So in the world that Mark Fisher lays out in Capitalist Realism, we can see how our sense of belonging is thwarted by the efforts of the market, dominating each part of our lives in ways that generate stress and depression. He speaks to the general instability inherent to a world that is at the whims of the market, and demonstrates how the market has seeped into the way that schools are structured, or how intrinsically people are connected to the market with digital technologies. All of these pressures converge with forces that keep people individualized and separate from one another. I'd like to extend Fisher's theory to the world of single-serving food, the general way that food has become individualized under capitalism. I think it perfectly captures the self-exile we've imposed on ourselves on account of profit generation. Meals are meant to be shared. There are many tens of thousands of years of human evolution that have made this a fundamental part of our nature. Cooking and eating together are the recipes for life. It's where life happens, where bonds are formed. Walking around in an American supermarket, you could see how for untold millions, sharing food is not a regular feature of life. Pepperidge Farms' newest single-servant dessert, Mississippi mud pie, gooey fudge, atop rich mousse, atop a chocolate cookie crust. Mm, forget everything your mother taught you about sharing. I think people are becoming more depressed on account of the inevitable loneliness that comes with commercialized food. Think of each meal shared with others or prepared with others as a natural antidepressant. In Mediterranean cultures, eating is not something done alone. 
there's natural Prozac in the big cauldron of paella. Think about this in terms of profit generation. In episode 5, we broke down how plastic producers team up with food producers to put units of food into smaller and smaller packages. This leads to higher profit margins. It makes financial sense to split up food and prepare it in a factory. The selling of whole foods in bulk, the kinds of food conducive to being shared with others, simply isn't as financially sound. Paella being made from scratch just isn't as prone to making money. There's less growth potential in it. So as a result, the market floods us with foods that can be had in isolation. I don't think there's some boardroom where marketing villains are intentionally trying to destroy meal sharing, but this is the natural byproduct of their attempts to increase their margins. You know, I was wondering, could you sell me half a can? Sure! You can? Single serving chunky, it's just enough for one. Single serving chunky, it's just enough for one. Maybe tomorrow I'll get half a can of chunky chicken. To further demonstrate how entrenched the system of thinking is, if work gets in the way of cooking time and someone's career is the most important thing in their life, it follows that meal sharing will naturally end up getting cast aside. Consider the TV dinner. The history of the TV dinner is a tale of opportunism and reveals the beginning of how these trends came to dominate our lives. In 1953, an employee of Swanson cooked up a solution for the thousands of excess turkeys that hadn't been sold during Thanksgiving. He realized that they could be cooked and sold at a massive markup as prepared food. From there, an entire industry emerged to fill this need, and the result was that consumers were quite explicitly directed away from sharing a meal with their loved ones. They now shared it with the television, which is just so on the nose that it's a bit cheesy. The boob tube was now a center of attention at the proverbial dinner table, so people could watch ads reinforcing their learned antisocial behaviors. Say, you guys think you're lucky you can get Swanson TV turkey dinners, but I say Swanson TV turkey dinners are a bigger break for husbands. Now, you take me. I can be early, I can be late, I can bring pals to dinner anytime I please, and get this, my wife never panics. She just takes Swanson TV turkey dinners from the freezing compartment of our refrigerator when I'm a little off schedule. Oh, and right you are, Jack. And that is because Mary Lou knows that she can have a, a swell dinner ready in just 25 minutes. Right. And talk about easy. Well, she just pops Swanson TV turkey dinners in a hot oven. You know, they're oven We've ready slowly ceded autonomy over our private lives to the market. And as a result, we lost a small chunk of something that would have made us feel tethered in an increasingly unstable world. In summary, this entire way of eating, this culture of convenience, can trace its roots back to Clarence Saunders and the origins of the supermarket. This is the logical endpoint of giving unchecked power over our food to companies to do what they will to entice us into choosing their products. We've been put in a 100-year experiment exploring to what degree our impulses could be manipulated. Beyond simply luring us in with sugary or fatty content wrapped in eye-catching colors, this experiment has subverted the rhythm of our lives. Eating on the go, eating at our desks, removing our agency from the process of cooking, reinforcing power structures that prioritize work. The rise of packaged, ready-made food coincides and contributes directly with the rise of neoliberalism. Consider that among G7 countries, the average U.S. worker works nearly 100 hours more annually than any other. Compared to Germany, the average U.S. worker puts in nearly 400 more hours worked annually. The food system that commercialized food created has helped the pro-work eternal growth mentality flourish. Imagine instead what we associate as the ideal of French living a country that also works hundreds of hours less annually than the United States while maintaining similar quality of life metrics. France is a country that is food-obsessed, one that scoffs at the idea of on-the-go food. 
Is it any wonder that this is a country that decides to riot the moment that the retirement age gets risen by a couple years? I would imagine not. There's a correlation between the attitudes towards how to eat and therefore how to live, and how people feel about working. This is all to say, perhaps we shouldn't so readily accept the food that stresses to us that it will make our lives simpler, that allow us to effectively cut out the act of eating in order to save time. Perhaps instead we should use our energy to demand higher wages to accompany less hours worked, to rethink our relationship with work and how it alters our relationships with food, and how our relationship with food alters our relationships with our communities and our families. This could allow us to return to our kitchens and dining rooms to share meals with one another. To conclude, try to imagine the food you most associate with a sense of family or belonging. Some sort of family tradition, grandma's recipe. Now try to place a dollar value on that meal. You can't. It doesn't make sense in the eyes of the market. There are intangibles that make life special, and those are often found when we share meals with others. Let's not let prepared foods keep on taking those experiences away from us. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Marcus Puskar, and this has been Candy Jail. Thank you.